0: Either it is a depiction of unity, a unity that will ultimately be embodied in Jerusalem, or it is a picture of a family about to begin a civil war inside Jerusalem. It is either a scene of Israelite togetherness, or of a family about to combust. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 95. What image hangs in the hermitage? I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In the Hermitage in St. Petersburg hangs a painting by Rembrandt that has been there since it was bought on behalf of Peter the Great. It shows what has been taken to be a biblical scene, one man embracing another. But what story is it? Two interpretations have been offered. One relates to a story we recently studied, and one to the chapters we approach today. The two interpretations see the painting in very different ways. But taken together in tandem, they embody something symbolic about David's life, and the meaning of his city, Jerusalem. On the Hermitage website, it is taken for granted that the image which we have sent to you today is a depiction of a tale that we have already studied together, that of David and Jonathan. Jonathan secretly signals Saul's murderous intent to David by engaging in seemingly clumsy archery in the field, overshooting his target, a prearranged sign that Saul seeks to kill David. David and Jonathan then rejoin each other in the field and say goodbye. Many assume that this is the story that Rembrandt has given us here, and the indication is the arrows that lie on the ground on the right of the canvas, the source of the signal that Jonathan sent to his friend. Thus, the Hermitage website reports, quote, The subject of the painting, David Parting with Jonathan, was inspired by the Bible verse, They kissed one another and wept with one another, but David more. This is the parting of two bosom friends. Jonathan, the son of the king, and the young hero David, the victor over Goliath, whom King Saul is plotting to kill out of jealousy for his fame. At the risk of his own life, Jonathan warns his friend of the danger. They are parting forever and seem to sense that. Their figures merge in an embrace. Pink, silvery green, golden, and smoky gray colors form an enchantingly beautiful range that conveys the movement of human feelings. The frozen high-relief brushstrokes are like a scattering of precious stones. Tenderness and sorrow, light and darkness, fill this painting. The artist invested much that was personal and deeply felt in this work it is no coincidence that he gave his own features to jonathan who presses the youthful david to his breast this work was acquired in amsterdam in 1716 for peter the great and became the first work by the dutch master to reach russia End quote. this is the story that the hermitage believes is shown in this painting and What Jonathan does for David is, as we have argued, an astonishing act of generosity. Jonathan knows that David, and not he, will take the throne, that this is the man that technically stands between him and the kingship. But Jonathan saves David nevertheless, and then Jonathan dies in battle, setting the stage for the rise of the Davidic dynasty and the eternal affiliation of the tribe of Judah rather than Benjamin with the monarchy. And this great act of Jonathan, a son of Benjamin, on behalf of David, a son of Judah, is, as it were, a repaying of an act of love and loyalty, which the original Judah performed against his own interest on behalf of his brother, the original Benjamin. Because as we have also discussed, the sons of Jacob came together following the rupture with Joseph, when Judah, standing before the vizier of Egypt that was Joseph in disguise, pledged his own life on behalf of Benjamin, and Joseph broke down and forgave his family. And if, as we have argued, Jerusalem represents Jewish unity because the city lies on the border of two tribes, joining the territories of Judah and Benjamin, in eternal remembrance of Judah's heroic sacrifice for Benjamin in Egypt, then the embrace between David and Jonathan, a son of Judah and a son of Benjamin, also embodies the Jewish unity that David will ultimately reify when he moves his capital to Jerusalem. But there are those who interpret this Hermitage painting entirely differently which would mean that the identification by the Hermitage of this Rembrandt painting as depicting David and Jonathan is actually incorrect. According to the Hermitage website, the man with the turban is Jonathan. The man whose face is obscured is David. But why do we assume that this person is David? In the Bible, David is described as admoni, which can perhaps be translated as a redhead. And this man's here in the picture is not red. Moreover, the only distinguishable feature that we see from this person who is weeping is his very long hair, a feature nowhere ascribed to David. But long hair is mentioned in the context of another member of the Davidic family, which leads us to the very strong possibility that Rembrandt is giving us here a very different tale, one which, like Judah, Joseph, and Benjamin, is about fathers and sons, but a much more tragic one. The painting, perhaps, pertains to Absalom of Shalom, son of David. And this brings us to our own chapters. Absalom of Shalom has a beautiful sister named Tamar. The background of their mother is not fully explicated in the text. And as Rabbi Amnon Bazak points out, it's not fully clear whether Tamar was truly also a child of David or whether she was raised by him. Avshalom, however, is obviously the son of David, the king's second oldest. Amnon, the oldest and heir apparent of the king, the half-brother of Shalom, Desires Tamar, and in an act of great evil, forces himself upon Tamar and violates her. Avshalom seethes and plans revenge. Chapter 13, verse 22. And Avshalom spoke unto his brother Amnon neither good nor bad, for Avshalom hated Amnon because he had forced himself upon his sister Tamar. Meanwhile, David, though furious at his eldest son, does nothing to punish Amnon for his terrible crime. The Tanakh offers no explanation for this lack of justice. Rabbi Bazak suggests that since the court of the king must have known of David's own sins concerning Bathsheba, David may have lost confidence in his own moral authority. Be that as it may, the fact that Amnon is not punished by David for his act of evil is surely part of what will fuel Avshalom's anger, not only against Amnon, but against David himself. Two years later, when the princes of David gather for sheep shearing, Avshalom acts. And the false rumor comes to David that all his sons have been killed. Verse 28. Now Avshalom had commanded his servant, saying, Mark ye now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say unto you, Smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Avshalom did unto Amnon as Avshalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man got him up upon his mule and fled. And it came to pass... While they were in the way, the tidings came to David, saying, Avshalom hath slain all the king's sons, and there is not one of them left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants stood by with their clothes rent. And Yonadav, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose that they have slain all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon only is dead. For by the appointment of Avshalom this hath been determined, from the day that he forced himself upon his sister Tamar. Now therefore let not my lord, the king, take the thing to his heart, to think that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon only is dead. But Avshalom fled. Avshalom kills Amnon in revenge and then finds himself banished from David's presence. After several years, Yoav, David's general, who senses that David misses his son, engineers Avshalom's return. And while David allows Avshalom to come back to Jerusalem, he still refuses to see his son. Verse 23. So Joab Rosa went to Gishur and brought Afshalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Afshalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. But in all Israel there was none to be so much praised as Afshalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot even to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair, for it was at every year's end that he cut it, because the hair was heavy on him, therefore he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. Now note the Bible's reference to Avshalom's hair and the fact that there is one person in Rembrandt's painting that has very long hair. Frustrated that the king would not see him, Avshalom engages in destruction of Yoav's property in order to force Yoav to beg David on Avshalom's behalf. Verse 30. Therefore he said unto his servants, See, Yoav's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And of servants set the field on fire. Then Yoav arose and came to Avshalom unto his house and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? And Avshalom answered Yoav, Behold, I sent unto thee saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now therefore let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Yoav came to the king and told him. And when he had called for Avshalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Avshalom. Avshalom thus returns and presents himself to his father David, and, we are informed, David embraces his son. According to some art historians, it is actually this story that Rembrandt is giving us in the painting in the Hermitage. The man with the turban, according to this approach, is not Jonathan, it is David, and he is embracing the other man, the one who has long hair. David's son, of Shalom. This is the approach taken by the art historian E. H. Gombrich in his book, The Story of Art. What, Gombrich writes, quote, could be more moving than the gesture of the young prince in his poured array burying his face on his father's breast, or King David in his quiet and sorrowful acceptance of his son's submission. Though we do not see Avshalom's face, we feel what he must feel, end quote. This is what Gombrich writes. But in truth, Afshalom is not actually submitting to his father, because we know that he is planning to overthrow his father, lead a revolt against him, bringing about a bloody civil war. As we look at this painting, if we assume that it is a depiction of David embracing Afshalom, we know what will happen next. Afshalom will rebel, expel David from Jerusalem, take David's concubines for himself, and proclaim himself king. Indeed, if this scene is not David and Jonathan, but David and Afshalom, then Rembrandt, seeking to emphasize both Avshalom's hair and the arrows that we see on the ground in order to hint to Avshalom's ultimate undoing because, as we will see tomorrow, while riding in battle against David's forces, Avshalom will be caught by his hair in a tree and, as he hangs there, Yoav will kill Afshalom by sticking arrow-like darts into Afshalom's heart. What this means is that which scene in the Bible this painting gives us determines what the theme of the painting actually is. Either it is David and Jonathan or David and Avshalom. Either it is a depiction of unity, a unity that will ultimately be embodied in Jerusalem, or it is a picture of a family about to begin a civil war inside Jerusalem. It is either a scene of Israelite togetherness or of a family about to combust. The two different interpretations of this Hermitage painting teach us about the nature and history of Jerusalem itself. At its best, the sacred city embodies the joining of Judah and Benjamin, of David and Jonathan, of brother with brother, of our ability as Jews to overcome our difference through unity. But just as Jerusalem can be the scene of great union, it has also, in the past, been a scene of great discord. As we recently discussed, it was the civil war that tore Jewish Jerusalem apart, which allowed the city to fall into the hands of the Romans in 70 CE. And thus, When we consider why the most beloved photograph in Jewish history is not Ben-Gurion announcing Israeli independence or images of other acts of statesmanship, but rather David Rubinger's photo of three paratroopers standing at the Wailing Wall, the explanation may in part be the fact that the photo seems to reflect the metaphysical bond between Jews. What we see reflected in the soldier's stance as they stand at the wall is, it seems, not only reverence at the miracle that has occurred, but also a bond between one another. The helmet of the man in the center, Yitzchak Yifat, is removed, his face is revealed, and his comrade at his side seemingly cannot help but place his arm around him. We see every one of the three, and though they each look different, at the same time, seemingly struck by the wonder of what has occurred, the soldiers appear to find unity with one another. The three men in the photo, Tzion Karazenti, Yitzhakifat, and Chaim Oshri, descend from different Jewish communities from around the world, but here they stand as one. The Hermitage painting and the two ways in which it was interpreted throughout the centuries reflects the tragedies and triumphs of Jewish Jerusalem. And those tragedies and triumphs are the reasons why we seek inspiration from the joining of the three soldiers in 1967, and why we ultimately say about Jerusalem with love and longing the words of David in the Psalms, For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will seek goodness for you. This is Mayor Salavichuk. looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.